Committed to its scientifically accurate portrayal of theoretical physics and featuring some of the best film scoring in Hans Zimmer's illustrious career, Christopher Nolan's 2014 Interstellar may very well be his most ambitious film ever. But these features aren't what ultimately makes his movie so compelling to so many people. Deeply embedded in this sci-fi epic are potent philosophical and theological symbols, ideas, and questions which move us to search beyond our culture's familiar assumptions about reality and our place within it. At its core, Interstellar is about the deep pangs we experience for transcendence as we feel trapped in the closed universe of the naturalist worldview, trapped in what philosopher Charles Taylor called the imminent frame of our secular age. What Taylor meant by imminent frame is that the dominant story of reality in the modern, secular Western world, which frames us in or encloses us all within this all-encompassing definition of reality and purpose, tells us that all that is real is what is materially right in front of us. So there is no supernatural, nothing that transcends our purposeless, random, material universe. There's only the imminent. But is reality just comprised of simply matter and nothing more, fading our existence and our very sense of meaning and purpose to be nothing more than the crude evolutionary appetites of common animals? Are our very feelings of love and capacity for compassion reducible to some sort of computer-like mechanical programming beyond our control? I thought it would be fascinating to explore this question of, you know, what if the most human characters on this ship were the non-human ones? So we, we started with the idea that these robots would have been developed in a time of war. But then I found something incredibly poignant to me about the idea that they would be just as marooned in the moment we find them in the film as anyone else. They're literally military surplus. They've just been abandoned. And what do we do with those sudden intrusions of thought that disrupt our notions of a closed, unenchanted universe? Those, those moments of feeling haunted by something more, by something transcendent. In Interstellar, the Earth of this not-so-distant future has been struck by cataclysmic blight. Like Gotham City in Nolan's Batman trilogy, and like the plague-struck city of Iran in Albert Camus' philosophical masterpiece, The Plague, this world is an indiscriminately cruel and absurd existence, symbolic of our experience living within the closed universe. Yes. Global superpowers have disbanded their armies, but humanity is threatened by a far more dull and simple demise than global war. The blight and undisclosed environmental catastrophe hangs like a heavy cloud of despair, as thick as the clouds of dust over all the characters in the film on Earth. Borrowing a phrase from the poet Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, which is famously narrated by Michael Caine's character, Professor Brand, the dying of the light slowly and inescapably approaches. The primary protagonist, Cooper, is a former NASA pilot who lost his wife to a treatable brain cyst, treatable at least in times past before they ceased production of MRI machines because for some reason the cost of making such machine machines now seems wasteful. 
Cooper is an explorer and an adventure seeker at heart, but despair has all but stripped him of his will to search for meaning beyond the imminent frame. It's clear early on that Cooper longs for the past, a, a past where he felt a sense of meaning and purpose, a, a past where people were encouraged to look to the stars for answers. You heard? It's like we've forgotten who we are now. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. When I was a kid, it felt like they made something new every day. Some gadget or idea. Like every day was Christmas. But six billion people. Just try to imagine that. And every last one of them trying to have it all. This world isn't so bad. And Tom will do just fine. You're the one who doesn't belong. Born 40 years too late or 40 years too early. My daughter knew it, God bless her. And your kids know it, especially Murph. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. As philosophers Charles Taylor and James K.A. Smith have identified, historical nostalgia is just one way that people, when facing the despair of being trapped within the imminent frame of our secular age, search for meaning and purpose. But what do we do when we come face to face with an experience that Taylor refers to as being haunted, an experience that beckons our curiosity about the transcendent? Now, Taylor, and subsequently one of Taylor's best philosophical field guides, philosopher James K.A. Smith, argues that how we inhabit the imminent frame and interpret a haunting experience is, quote, less a fruit of deduction than a vibe, end quote. At this point in the cultural game, where the rules and stories have already been long established, how we deal with the possibility of transcendence is, to quote Smith, far less a reasoned experience or articulated worldview and more a picture that holds us captive, end quote. In other words, it's more of a vibe, a gut instinct, or just a picture precisely because at this point it has become so culturally normative that it runs in our subconscious, or to quote Taylor again, it runs background to our thinking. As a great example of this, let's compare how both Cooper and his daughter Murph handled the haunting experience of the alleged ghost in her room. Let me guess, was your ghost? It knocked it off my shelf. It keeps on knocking books off. No such thing as a ghost, dumbass. Hey. I looked it up. It's called a poltergeist. Dad, tell her. Wow, it's not very scientific, Murph. You said science is about admitting what we don't know. Just got you there. Hey, start looking after our stuff. Cool. Or if you want to talk science, I'm just telling that you're afraid of some ghost. No, you got to go further. You got to record the facts, analyze, get to the how and the why, then present your conclusions. Neil? Deal. Deal. 
Cooper's gut response is to simply reestablish for his daughter the acceptable bounds of the imminent frame within our secular age. Immaterial ghosts and spiritual beings that that are like that are just simply aren't real and she should just use science to determine the true cause of the books randomly falling from the shelves in her room. At this point, Cooper is what Charles Taylor would call close to transcendence. Yet Murph's gut response, while not denying that science should be used to discern all possible information from this event, is far more open to it being something truly transcendent. She represents what Taylor would call someone open to transcendence. Now, whether intended to be symbolic by Christopher Nolan or not, there is something brilliant about what transpires to cause Cooper to become optimistically more curious about Murph's ghost. That constant and yet nearly imperceivable cloud of dust, that symbolic weight of despair, or what Charles Taylor might have called a general malaise that seems to saturate everyone and everything, takes the shape of a powerful dust storm and blows into the open window of Murph's bedroom, actually causing Cooper to come face to face with the evidence of Murph's ghost. Cooper moves from being closed to optimistically open through an encounter with the storm of despair, which acts as a shock to his subconscious system revealing the possibility of there being more than what he's previously believed this imminent frame holds. As we talked about in episode 11 on The Dark Knight, another great Christian philosopher and father of existentialism, Soren Kierkegaard, argued that there are differing kinds of despair and that coming face to face with despair is necessary if we're going to ultimately transcend it. Despair can actually lead us to the necessary death of ourselves and subsequent leap of faith into the transcendent eternal. Now, Cooper hasn't taken that step yet, but this moment is certainly the beginning of a transformative process. Murph isn't the only character who demonstrates a certain level of inherent openness to the transcendent. We see it also in Dr. Amelia Brand, who Though a scientist that in principle agrees rationally with the naturalist framework, which sets the boundaries of the imminent frame, also expresses a deeper, what we might say, supra-rational feeling about the hopeful possibility of the existence of the transcendent. Love isn't something we invented. It's observable. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade, who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. At the very least, to use Taylor's language, she feels cross-pressured. That is to say, she feels a pressure to adhere to the culturally established stories of a closed eminent frame on one side, and yet simultaneously she feels 
a deep sense of its inadequacy on the other side, creating this pressure inside of her. Throughout the rest of the film, two questions become the primary philosophical and even theological focus that the story explores. First, is love evidence of the transcendent, or is what we call love merely a biological phenomenon useful in the evolution of our species and perfectly explainable within the closed universe of naturalism? And secondly, if Murph's ghost and whatever opened the wormhole for interstellar travelers from Earth to explore, and whatever or whoever reached out to touch Bran as they began to traverse the wormhole is intentionally trying to save humanity, then what or who is it? Is it evidence of the transcendent? Let's start with the first question. Now, in Christian theology, God's essence is love, and in particular understandings of Trinitarian theology, this loving essence, this eternal communion shared within God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, is the very reason God has created. His act of creation is intrinsically linked to his loving essence. As he gives himself away in love to create objects of love who can participate in perfect love. As image bearers, humanity has a special invitation into communion that exceeds the invitation to the rest of creation because God became a human in the incarnate Christ. As I've discussed in previous episodes, the, the naturalist worldview emerged from a theistic womb and Nietzsche brilliantly observed that our, our Western notions of the value of the individual and the transcendent power of things like love, while coherent within the Christian story, become completely incoherent with the death of God in a secular age. The cultural desire to affirm something like love as somehow linked to something transcendent is, is simply the, the holdover of Christianity and is utterly illogical when the existence of the transcendent is denied. While Cooper in theory holds to love being merely a biological phenomenon, his actions as the movie progresses demonstrates a deeper subconscious openness, as if there is some transcendent value to the love he experiences towards his children. It's as if the cross-pressuring grows and grows in him until the pressure reaches a bursting point. This bursting point comes during the confrontation with Dr. Mann. Mann was part of the prior Lazarus missions, a theologically symbolic name that seems quite appropriate, which had stranded him on this ice planet as he searched for habitable worlds. Mann deceives Cooper, Brand, and Dr. Romilly in an effort to preserve his own life, lying about the fitness of the planet to sustain human life, and then attempts to kill Cooper in order to hijack their ship and escape off of the barren planet. From death. Our survival instinct is our single greatest source of inspiration. Take you, for example, a father with a survival instinct that extends to your kids. What does research tell us is the last thing you're going to see before you die? Your children, their faces. At the moment of death, your mind's going to push a little bit harder to survive. You're feeling it, aren't you? Your survival instinct. That's what drove me. It's what drives all of us. 
And it's what's gonna save us. Because I'm gonna save all of us. For you, Cooper. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't watch you go through this. I'm sorry. I thought I could, but I can't. I'm here. I'm here for you. Just listen to my voice, Cooper. I'm right here. You're not alone. Do you see your children? They're right there with you. Did Professor Brent tell you that poem before you left? Do you remember? Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Man is a wonderful representation of another response to the imminent frame and the closed universe of naturalism. He represents the Nietzsche-like rejection of traditional Christian ethics and the replacement of that system with social Darwinism. If God is dead, then we are the only authoring agents left in the universe. All of our notions of the good, the true, and the beautiful are just driven by evolutionary forces in our biology. The strongest of those forces is our survival instincts, and if our survival comes at the cost of another, well, that's simply how natural selection works. Tough luck. And who is it to say that man is wrong? Certainly, the audience may experience a certain moral repulsion at man's attempted murder of Cooper, but in the imminent frame, what is it to point us to the ultimate good? When each of us are free to author whatever we feel like the ultimate good is. This is again why people like Sam Harris, who most certainly have a closed orientation towards the possibility of the transcendent, are, are giving much of their life towards trying to find an objective ultimate good that fits within the naturalist story. They realize that this radical self-authoring of what is good produces conflicting visions of what is good among people, and, and it ultimately threatens humanity as a whole by, by those who simply have the power to exert their will over others. Emerging from this climactic incident with Dr. Mann, having come face to face with death, Cooper symbolically demonstrates one of the oldest Christian notions of what the ultimate shape of love looks like. He rejects his own evolutionary instincts for self-preservation and gives up his life so that brand and perhaps what even remains of humanity on earth might live. But as we know from the rest of the film, Cooper doesn't actually die as he descends into the abyss of the black hole. In fact, he emerges from that abyss on the other side with a transformed perspective. One which has now come to the conclusion that love is somehow a transcendent force that goes beyond the explanations our imminent frame provides. All of this, the one little girl's bedroom, 
every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm gonna find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How, Cooper? Love, Tars, love. It's just like Brandon said. My connection with Murph, it is quantifiable. It's the key. His willingness to go down into death actually saves not only himself, but ultimately humanity. What is it about this act compared to man's actions that appeals to our sense of right and wrong so sharply? Why does this so deeply resonate with us as a heroic act? While man, who actually also seemed to want to save the species, comes across on a gut level as being malevolent. Sure. Now, some may take a Dr. Man sort of perspective in an attempt to keep the imminent frame closed to the possibility of transcendence and just dismiss our deep resonance with stories in which one willingly gives of their life for the sake of another as being nothing more than evolutionarily conditioned altruistic behavior that we've just had to learn in order for our species to survive. But if what is merely evolutionarily advantageous is going to be our ethical guide alone, then it's hard to dismiss the usefulness of things like eugenics and even be able to call that evil. What if instead there is some deeper innate resonance with the good, the true, and the beautiful that leads us to a transcendent ultimate source of those things, and that that has somehow been wired intentionally into humanity? While Interstellar encourages viewers to explore beyond the imminent, attempting to name love as something transcendent, and even modeling in Cooper's heroic self-sacrifice a symbolic Christian model of the path to ultimately transcend despair through a dying to self and a leap of faith into the unknown, I found Interstellar's conclusion to be ultimately unfulfilling, and here's why. In the end, the answer Nolan gives to these deep questions is still exclusive humanism. Well, they didn't bring us here at all. We brought ourselves. We're, we're still alone in the universe with no one to look out for us but ourselves. Nolan's vision of humanity a humanity that has now somehow transcended space and time is in many ways similar to popular New Age writers and thinkers like Jean Houston. Houston and others like her believe that humanity's evolution into higher and higher states of consciousness will eventually lead us to, quote, become the gods we have invoked, end quote. And in fact, the vision of reality presented in Interstellar is in some ways a picture-perfect cinematic portrayal of Houston's belief that we will inevitably progress from what she calls Type 1 civilizations, where we'll be leaving Earth to create space colonies that have viable ecologies, to Type 2 civilizations, where we will become capable on a sensory level of controlling the resources of entire solar systems, to ultimately Type 3 level civilizations, where she believes we will essentially be gods ourselves. 
While I personally disagree with the final answer the film provides for our longing for transcendence, I, I'm far more appreciative of its attempts to even ask the deep questions at all. We, we need more art like this, more, more art that's grasping at transcendence in our imminent frame. And when it's done as masterfully as Nolan has done with Interstellar, the beauty alone can move people from being closed to being open about the possibility of living in an enchanted world again. Thanks for watching or listening to this episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. If you find the content I'm creating helpful, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Links are available in the descriptions and I'd love to have you subscribe on YouTube, iTunes or Podbean or Spotify or, or wherever you're listening to podcasts at. And as always, I love hearing from you in the comment sections or review sections and engaging in nuanced dialogue about this stuff together. So till next time.